0: Hello and welcome to My Daily Podcast. I'm Bernard Hickey. This is my podcast that goes out with my email newsletter via Substack, called The Kaka, every weekday, usually. Today I wanted to have a look at what's going to happen over the next two or three days in Britain. On Monday, it's expected that Conservative Party members in Britain will elect Liz Truss as their leader which means that she will be the Prime Minister. She and Boris Johnson will have to travel up to Scotland uh, for the Queen to swear her in as the Prime Minister. And for a lot of people who might not have heard of Liz Truss, certainly here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, this sounds like a return to some sort of normality after the weirdness and wildness of Boris Johnson and the tragedy of the uh, COVID response in Britain, let alone the tragedy of Brexit. And uh, you'd unfortunately be wrong, because Liz Truss has been saying for the last few months, and uh, consistently with her past views, saying things that are even more extreme than Boris Johnson. She's been saying that she would reduce income tax rates, reduce the value-added tax or GST rate and not increase revenues elsewhere. She is effectively a hard-right supply-sider. That means that she's quite happy to run big budget deficits on the view that removing government and regulation from an economy will just naturally make it more efficient and grow faster, which actually is just not true. But that's her view because she's actually uh, uh, reflecting the views of traditional, hardcore, Conservative Party supporters. Now you may ask, why on earth would you uh, elect a leader who's not going to appeal to the centre of politics? Well, that's a function of some accidents of history and some differences in the way that people select party leaders in Britain compared to here, and also uh, differences in the electoral system. In the United Kingdom, uh, for a couple of decades now, the Conservative Party, and actually the Labour Party, have been uh, consulting with their members before they elect a leader of their parliamentary party. So there's like a public debate and contest between candidates uh, and the people they need to convince are their hardcore voters. Unlike in New Zealand, where... The decision about who leads a political party, particularly in opposition, is made by the caucus members, the actual MPs. Now that's important because uh, in New Zealand, uh, people who want to be in government have to appeal to the centre. They have to win median voters, flip them from one party to the other. So that means they can't come out with extreme comments that may be fantastic for their supporters to hear. Because in New Zealand, you need to win the centre. That means that for the Labour Party, one of the reasons that Jacinda Ardern is there is because there is a clause in the Labour constitution, which means the parliamentary party is able to select its own leader. The caucus alone is allowed to select its own leader when it's very close to an election. Now those rules have been changed somewhat to ensure the caucus remains in charge and the national party caucus here also have the same rule that it's the caucus who decides but the caucus and the mps understand how to win government and how to retain their jobs because of course when you lose in new zealand uh, particularly if you're a list mp and even some of the uh, more marginal electorate mps you'll get wiped out so the last thing you want is to lose an election badly by being too extreme with your views and policies and uh on the whole is a good thing you could argue it creates a tyranny of the center but certainly um it avoids the sort of crazy stuff you're starting to see in other places now you may say well what's relevant about that why should we care well over the last couple of years and frankly for the last decade or so we're seeing an increasingly polarized and volatile tone in geopolitics. We're seeing elections where extremists are being elected, where extreme policies are being adopted, where, frankly, nutty, crazy, incompetent leaders are being appointed. uh, Trump and Johnson. Uh, But it's not just there. All across the world, political systems and democracies are being polluted by an increasingly polarised, angry and tribal approach to politics and public life. And you may say, well, that's only natural. Uh, We've had a big widening of inequality and a lot of very angry people are saying that this is not fair. And certainly globalisation and the uh, changes in society have meant that a lot of people uh, feel that They've lost their position in society in that uh, the country is going backwards. Sometimes that is um, an excuse for people who feel entitled to be in control, remaining in control, even though the demographics may be changing. But certainly there's a bunch of people who feel that way and not just in the United States, also in the UK and in Europe. Essentially, a whole bunch of people are revolting against what they see as a, an international elite of central bankers and hedge fund managers and rich people and their political mates who run society in their own interests. And there's quite a lot to be sympathetic about that view. However, um, Over time, there has been a real change in tone and an increase in instability in geopolitics. And we can see that reflected in some of the dysfunction that we're seeing now. For example, I really don't think Vladimir Putin would have invaded Ukraine if Donald Trump had not been president for four years and if Britain had not voted for Brexit, because uh, Russia until let's respect China, have been campaigning for many, many years to demoralize, to create division, confusion, and effectively to run down the effectiveness of democracies for their own reason. And they've used social media to do that, to use bots and other uh, measures to sow dissent, to organize chaos And if you think this is irrelevant to us, and only a minor thing, uh, a study by Microsoft and others shows that during our 2020 election, and since then, particularly around the parliamentary protests, there was a significant amount of uh, activity from Russian-based trolls and bots throwing material into the debates in New Zealand's Facebook, Telegram, Instagram, Twitter communities, uh, which in part fueled, I think, uh, some of the really ugly scenes and noise around the parliamentary protests through February and March here. So uh, we have a, an unstable world of geopolitics, and the election of Liz Truss is just another example of it, with the potential for Donald Trump to win uh, the 2024 election if he isn't prosecuted before then. And we've seen, for example, the Republican Party, uh, by its use of gerrymandering, manage to gain control of the Supreme Court and pursue some increasingly aggressive um, policies, because that was the plan. So why is this important to us? Well, we are a part of the world. And when there's instability and dysfunction that has created the sorts of inflation that we've got at the moment, in part through a natural event, the arrival of COVID, but at least also in part a result of how we're cooking the planet. And without international cooperation and sensible voices and policies, we're going to keep cooking the planet and we're going to keep creating these zoonotic diseases. These are the ones where diseases jump the species barrier from animals to humans, and the research shows that you're more likely to see that in an environment of a warming planet and climate change and extreme weather events which of course we've seen in spades over the last couple of years it seems to be accelerating so um, this failure of western democracy to um, be stable and competent is enabling and encouraging the autocracy the autocracies of the world like China and Russia to do their thing, which of course is damaging in the long run to all sorts of things. And if you're looking for proof of it, you only have to look at what's happening at the moment in Ukraine and the risks around uh, Taiwan and of conflict there, which of course we need to know about. China is our largest trading partner. Most of our refined fuel goes through those straits. If there was a war there, we would be very quickly and badly affected in all sorts of ways, not just our exports, but our imports. With a floating currency, with our involvement in the rest of the world, we are not an island to ourselves, and we should take notice of it. Now, you may ask, well, what changed 10 years ago that suddenly made it worse? Well, um, here's where I think uh, there has been a couple of things going on. Firstly, the response of what you'd call the global elite, if you're being rude, the central bankers, the governments in 2008-19-10 to the global financial crisis, to the collapse or near collapse of banks in the United States and Europe was to effectively bail those banks out, to use taxpayers' balance sheets and the ability to print currency to solve those problems for those people who were about to lose money or lose their jobs or lose um, an institution which would have created more uh, financial and economic carnage and on the face of it you can see why they did it uh, in the in the uh, immediate need to avoid a catastrophe it makes sense to do whatever you can to solve the problem and we saw that not just in the united states but in in the uk and in europe in the united states you saw the bailouts of aig merrill lynch goldman sachs uh, most of the car makers all of the airlines um, Anyone who has who was pretty well connected to the government, and certainly with the banks, um, that needed they needed to be stabilised to avoid a nineteen thirty star depression, but unfortunately, on the whole, no one paid the price for that. Hardly anyone went to prison for fraud, and uh, within a few years, all of those people who were at Lehman Brothers and elsewhere were back on the horse doing pretty much the same thing. There has been some changes in the way that banks have been regulated and they now have to have a lot more capital, which means that they are relatively safe this time around. But in essence, the response to the global financial crisis was to worsen inequality and to do it in an undemocratic way because independent central banks uh, did it without uh, having to ask or asking and effectively uh, they were given the nod and approved by Governments, democratic governments, and we saw a very clear example of that here in New Zealand uh, during the COVID crisis, when our central bank uh, agreed to buy fifty-five billion dollars worth of bonds and did it to lower longer-term interest rates and pump up asset values and rescue the economy through the wealth effect. And that um, that worked. However, in the process, they made asset owners much much richer and removed the prospect of home ownership and uh, the creation of stable family lives for those people who had hoped to get onto the, uh, the uh, homeowning ladder at some point, but are now going to have to wait for decades because house prices rose 45% and look like they're only going to fall back 20% or so. So there was the effectively the original sin of the 2008-2009 global financial crisis. The response to it And the lack of accountability for the failings that led up to it and if you're looking for an example of that um, just read the big short or watch the movie it's probably a bit faster and more entertaining and you'll see that um, there's a whole bunch of people just cannot understand that there was never any accountability or redress for um, all the things that led to the global financial crisis fast forward to COVID, same thing again banks and central banks bailed out asset owners and appear to be doing it without any comeback although the arrival of inflation has caused all sorts of political grief for politicians and plenty of finger pointing uh, at the central banks at the politicians and this has caused a lot of uh, uh, political grief and instability in its own right but what is something else going on here. Why is everyone so grumpy and angry and frustrated and willing to point the finger at the other side? They're not listening. They're not engaging. They're not doing deals. They're just shouting. Well, in 2010, Apple launched the iPhone 4. The iPhone 4 had a front-facing camera and a good enough processor, a good enough screen, so that it could use the new 4G networks that were coming on stream at that point in a very cheap and widespread and deep way. Suddenly you could use your smartphone to check your email, to look at a social media account, to take a picture, not just of someone else but of yourself, and to upload it and to build your social life essentially through those worlds that you accessed on your phone. In the space of 10 years, we went from less than 5% of the global population having a smartphone to more than 50%. Over 4 billion phones were uh, sold, built, handed out over those 10 years. And uh, businesses and institutions, uh, places to talk, were created purely out of the back of the iPhone 4 and, of course, the Google Android response to it which uh, meant that we saw the likes of Instagram created and then bought by Facebook. Facebook pivot very aggressively to the mobile phone. YouTube become less of a niche thing and something that we watch music and video on all the time uh, on our phones. The growth of TikTok um, and a whole bunch of other social media and communications platforms, that effectively meant the place that we had our discussions, that we learned things, that we debated things, was social media. It wasn't anymore in the letters of the newspapers or on talkback radio or in town hall meetings. Now, the reason that's important is because the way these platforms are set up and paid for, they're free, is that they make money for the owners through advertising. And the owners have worked out how to use artificial intelligence and the algorithms that put content in front of you in your newsfeed? how to ensure that you stay on for as long as possible. They get, get you addicted to the dopamine hits and to the shock, the outrage, the pleasure, the, the joy, the anger of seeing a piece of news or a piece of a picture or a video and going to like and share and comment and understanding what is it that pushes your buttons and it turns out that the worst angels of our nature are what push our buttons Uh, when we're angry when we want to join a a crowd when we want to be on a tribe against another tribe those are the uh, times and the places where we hit like and share and we're increasingly angry and often that's how we see the world i think social media and the Launch of the iPhone 4, which really was the inflection point for the growth of smartphones, has changed the way the world's not just of democracies, but uh, about how people think about the wider world, talk about it, make policy, make decisions, vote—all of those things—and it's less stable, more extreme, more polarized, um, less predictable, uh, and dangerous, as we've seen in various ways in the last few years the world's largest and oldest and most powerful democracy almost had a coup at the beginning of last year we've got the biggest war in Europe since the end of the second world war we have the world's two biggest superpowers china and the united states on the on the verge of threatening actual military conflict and appearing to embark on a multi-decade process of competition at best and rivalry at worst and we're stuck in the middle of it Now, I don't actually have a solution for any of this, sorry, but um, I just wanted to give you my broader point of view on why I think we're having such volatility in geopolitics and how it's affecting our ability to solve some of our long-term challenges that need cooperation across borders, not to mention across parties inside borders. And I thought it'd be useful to talk about. Um, There are some things we can do, certainly in New Zealand, make sure that we protect... Our uh, political system which isn't gerrymandered and which encourages politicians to compete for, <laughs> compete for the centre rather than uh, the extreme. And also to avoid um, uh, the algorithms and the social media um, completely dominating our political conversations and become the tools for um, making our own politics more extreme and being less complacent about interference in our politics from the likes of Russia and China, not to mention other forces uh, in the likes of the extreme right of the United States. I'm Bernard Hickey. That was my daily podcast on the kaka. Kaki Town.